0: Well, uh, last week, uh, the Dalai Lama gave a speech on the Middle Way, and I um, have prepared something as well, uh, kind of a uh, partial script, if you would. So, this here, entitled, The Middle Way. So, as I said, the Dalai Lama gave a teaching, and in it he said the entirety of the teaching of the middle way was found in two stanzas of a work entitled the Madhyamaka Vatara, which just means the middle way vehicle, or in English, entering the middle way by Chantra Kirti. The fourth ground, the radiant. All higher qualities follow after diligence. It is the cause of merit and wisdom, the two collections. Where diligence comes to be set ablaze, that ground is the fourth, the radiant. Here the Sugata's children come to have, through their special practice of the factors of enlightenment, the light of Gnosis, far brighter than the glow of shining copper. Thoughts associated with identity view totally cease. So, this, yeah, you can see in this the fourth ground, the radiant, right? Wisdom. And spoken of this before, darkness being a metaphor for ignorance and light being one for wisdom right all higher qualities again what we're talking about is the achievement of uh, cessation so not uh, perceiving suffering feelings right to achieving a middle way a balance where you know it's not hot it's not cold it's just is Right? The two collections of merit and wisdom. Merit being both ethics and right view and following the correct path. Wisdom being the, the benefit from walking the path of merit, of ethics, of the Eightfold Path. Where digil- diligence comes to be set ablaze. We've spoken about this. That faith, faith is used to transform ignorance into doubt and doubt into wisdom, right? So faith, diligence, the shraddha that I've spoken before of, that uh, commitment and um, um, devotion, right? So diligence being another uh, word. This is the fourth ground, the radiant. Here, Sugata's children, this is all of the Buddhist children, come through their special practices uh, of the factors of enlightenment. And we've discussed this before, right? Tranquility, concentration, equanimity, rapture, joy, energy, investigation, mindfulness. These practices... Of, of working towards this goal of wisdom brings about this light of Gnosis. Gnosis being knowledge. Light, again, we've talked about this. Far bri- brighter, far brighter this light of Gnosis than the glow of shining copper. So, brighter the knowledge that transcends this ephemeral world's Transcends the, uh, the femoral world, transcends all of our phenomena, our feelings, even ourselves. And finally, thoughts associated with identity view totally cease. And again, In this case, we're not just talking about no self in oneself, but we're talking about there is no self, no permanent, unchanging self. So dependent origination and emptiness in all things, right? So that's why it mentions this glow of shining copper. Don't confuse um, the majesty of uh, the phenomenal world to be anything but uh, a manifestation of our own ignorance this delusion this maya uh, illusion and right, i follow this quote up with one from well two from nietzsche where he says the snake which cannot cast its skin has to die as well the minds which are prevented from changing their opinions they cease to mind i love that right you got this idea That if you don't change, I've talked about uh, this new principle of free energy, this idea that the human mind is a predictive matrix. So we're trying to predict outcomes in our environment. We use the self to better that predictive engine, but at the same time, it sometimes gets in the way because it's supposed to be an intermediary between our minds, a predictive um, engine, right, to tell us what it thinks is going to happen based on what it's seen in the past and what it's observing from its environment. But we don't always accept the uh, reality, the sensory input. Sometimes we try to look on the bright side of life uh, to our own benefit, right? So this is this idea that the snake must cast its skin to, to truly live, right? As well, a mind that's prevented from changing their opinions, their beliefs, their understandings, their perceptions. They cease to mind. I love that play. It's the idea that they don't mind not being a mind, and they also cease to be a mind. And the next quote I inserted was, The man of knowledge must be able to not only love his enemies, but also hate his friends. Again, another quote from Nietzsche, and I love this idea, right? You have to love your enemies, and we've said this, love thine enemy, but not often do we talk about hating Thine friends. This is this idea of equanimity. When you can see a balance or even the dichotomy in both. Right? Hating your enemies, not a dichotomy. Loving your friends, not a dichotomy. Hating your friends and loving your enemies. Whoa. The balance is found in all of those. That's that Cetascoti, the Tetralemma. It's not this, it's not that. It is this and that. Neither, both, all, I mean, who knows? That's the takeaway. Right? And the next quote I like, it's an interesting quote, it just seems unrelated, but I hope is understandable, is from E. E. Cummings, a great writer. It's entitled, A Poet's Advice to Students. And it says, A poet is somebody who feels and who expresses his feeling through words. This may sound easy, it isn't. A lot of people think or believe or know they feel, but that's thinking or believing or knowing, not feeling. And poetry is feeling, not knowing or believing or thinking. Almost anybody can learn to think or believe or know, but not a single human being can be taught to feel. Why? Because whenever you think, or you believe, or you know, you're a lot of other people. But the moment you feel, you are nobody but yourself. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else it means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight, and never stop fighting. As for expressing nobody but yourself in words, that means working just a little harder than anybody who isn't a poet can possibly imagine. Why? Because nothing is quite as easy as using words like somebody else. We, all of us, do exactly this nearly all of the time. And whenever we do it, we're not poets. If at the end of your first 10 or 15 years of fighting and working and feeling, you find you've written one line of one poem, You'll be very lucky indeed. And so my advice to all young people who wish to become poets is do something easy, like learning how to blow up the world, unless you're not only willing but glad to feel and work and fight till you die. Does this sound dismal? It isn't. It's the most wonderful life on earth. Or so I feel. I thought that was wonderful. And it leads into a piece that I wrote called Life is the Cacophony of Sensual Artifacts. I often hear a request to sit in silence. I would not liken meditation or life as such. I would say, to sit with the noise, to sit in silence, life and practice is not still. To sit with the noise, to sit in silence, life and practice is a rage. To sit with the noise, existence. His rage, calm, and insight opens a way to sit with the noise. And then a little clip from Hamlet in his soliloquy to take up arms against a sea of troubles, right? This meaning of life idea. And then I have another quote from Blavatsky of all people. Meditation is silent and unuttered prayer, or, as Plato expressed it, the ardent turning of the soul toward the divine. Not to ask any particular good, as is the common meaning of prayer, but for good itself, for the universal good, universal supreme good, I apologize. The remainder of the quote goes on, of which... We are a part on earth and out of the essence of which we have all emerged. And then I put in a couple excerpts from a T.S. Eliot poem that's really uh, stayed with me for many years. We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom, for thine is, life is, for thine is the, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. You can see in this poem, right? Between the reality and the motion and the act, falls the shadow, and for thine is the kingdom. Between conception and creation, that spark, that divine spark that in uh, Vedanta is given by the divine. Between the emotion and the response. Is that moment, that awareness—the big self, as some call it, or just the divine—right between the desire and the spasm, right between the potency and the existence, the essence and the descent, right between between having the ability to live and living between having life and losing it. The little meaning of life is whatever you're doing that prevents you from killing yourself, said Camus. He said, but in the end, one needs more courage to live than to kill himself. You will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you are looking for the meaning of life. And then Nietzsche said, there is always some madness in love, but there is always some reason in madness. Who has a why to live for can bear almost any how.